I'm grateful for the breadth of the Bible. It is comprehensive. It speaks to issues of our lives and culture, even the difficult ones, especially the difficult ones. It's like a, a spotlight that shines on the dark, the dark places of our lives and culture and invites us to step forward into the light, into the light of Jesus Christ and walk along a new and, and better path. We're currently in the midst of a sermon series uh, in the book of Genesis, and the title of this series is God the Creator and Redeemer. God the Creator and Redeemer. And in this series, we're exploring the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. What we've done over the last few weeks, however, is to do a mini-series within that larger series, and that is a mini-series on the doctrine of the image of God that we see in chapter 1 in Genesis. In this mini-series, we're considering carefully the implications of the doctrine of the image of God. The implications of the image of God. So two weeks ago, uh, I preached a sermon on the image of God and gender. The image of God and gender. Uh, last Sunday, I preached a second implication. The image of God and race. The image of God and race. And now this Sunday, I, I preach a third implication, uh, the image of God and the unborn, uh, the image of God and the unborn. The focal text for these three weeks in this image of God miniseries is Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27. We'll project that. I'll, I'll read that as a reminder. We've been really rooting in on this. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The image of God means that we find who we are only in relation to him. We resemble him, we reflect him, we represent him in this world. We are not him, we reflect him, we image him, we speak, we steward, we caretake, we delight, we create, we reflect some of the attributes of God, not all, some of them. We are not God, we reflect God. This is the image of God. This reality gives every single human being inherent dignity and value and worth. It therefore informs how we treat precious human beings created in the image of God. That's what all these implications are about. How do we treat precious people created in the image of God? No matter their ability, no matter their gender, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their age. We must honor the image of God in fellow human beings. That's our goal in this mini-series, honoring the image of God in precious human persons. So our third and final topic, implication in this mini-series is the image of God and the unborn. Like I've mentioned the past two weeks, these are very, very difficult topics, very sensitive topics. Uh, and I hope you've heard my heart as I preached agonizing during the week in sermon preparation. These are heavy topics. I would rather not preach them in my own flesh and sinfulness. But these are topics that the Lord speaks to. 
you and I will be discipled by our culture. We're going to hear messages about these things, whether we realize it or not. Someone's going to disciple us. Is it going to be a healthy voice? Is it going to be God's word? You're going to get discipled, instructed somewhere. So we need in the church to speak about these realities in a healthy way. This is a difficult message, one that's not easy to preach, one that's not easy to hear. I understand that. So at the outset today, this message on precious, unborn human persons is not about condemnation. It's not about antagonism. It's not about politics. It's about faithfulness. Faithfulness to God's desire. Faithfulness to God's design. How would God have us think about and act on this critically important issue. This is an area where we need much, much grace. The weight of guilt and shame is heavy in this issue. One out of four women have had an abortion. The number is the same in the church, friends. Just look around. One out of four. One out of four. Consciences remain haunted by secret decisions of the past. Women and men are involved in this. Women and men are involved in this. Boyfriends, husbands, grandparents who perhaps paid for it, healthcare providers who conducted it. Men and women are involved. We need much, much grace. And the good news that undergirds all of this is that God gives his grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He provides a means of grace and forgiveness in the midst of our guilt and our shame. He binds up the brokenhearted and he empowers us to move forward in a healthy way. Some of you will be tempted to completely tune out this discussion. In fact, you may have already started to do that. And I, as a friend and a pastor, whether I know you well or not, I'm just gonna simply ask for your hearing this morning. Would you, would you just hear, listen to what God has, has to say on this topic? Take time to carefully reflect on this. You may disagree, uh, but as we've been talking about, let's, let's talk and have a conversation about what we perhaps disagree on. We were open to that. We love to do that. That's what healthy communities do is talk about hard things, not sweep it under the rug because it only festers and gets worse and you'll trip over that big lump in the rug if you sweep it under there. We need to talk about it, pray through things. That's what healthy community is. So to complement our Genesis 1 passage, I want to open up to another passage with you uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Uh, in the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Psalm 139 on page 522. Page 5. 22. Uh, Psalm 139, scan to verse 13. We'll begin in 13 and read through verse 16. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Uh, king David, Israel's most renowned earthly king, uh, writes this prayer to God. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you 
when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. According to the World Health Organization, every year globally, 73 million precious unborn human persons are aborted. What that means is before this day is over, 200,000 babies will be aborted. This is an absolutely staggering assault on the image of God and on the consciences of men and women. The magnitude of these deaths dwarfs any and all genocides in human history. It just, just dwarfs them. And the common creed of our culture is it's a woman's legal and just right to choose what to do with what's in her womb. And the question that lies at the very heart of this issue, the question that we must answer accurately, is what is in the womb? What is in a pregnant woman's womb? That changes everything. Our answer to that changes everything. It's the crux of the issue. If the unborn is not human, no justification for elective abortion is needed. But if the unborn is human, no justification for elective abortion is adequate. What is the unborn? What is in a pregnant woman's womb? It's a game-changing question. I want to examine three truths from Psalm 139. And the first truth that we see deals specifically with this question, what is in a pregnant woman's womb? So truth number one, a pregnant woman's womb contains a precious unborn human person. A pregnant woman's womb contains a precious unborn human person. The language of personhood is all over Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Over and over and over again in these four short verses, the unborn is referred to with the first person personal pronouns, I, my, me. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. King David is the human author of this psalm. He fully recognizes and declares his human identity in his mother's womb. Those personal pronouns are used only of persons, human beings, precious human beings created in the image of God. David was a precious unborn human person in his mother's womb. Each one of us was a precious unborn human person in our mother's womb. And every one of those 200,000 babies that will be aborted by this day over 
are precious, unborn human persons. Passing seven inches down a birth canal doesn't make a person a person. God makes a person a person. It's his fingertips, his handiwork, his wonderfully creative work that begins at conception that makes a person a person. God's creative care, his intentionality, his intricacy, intimacy in making human person is just sounding forth from every phrase of this passage. You formed me, you molded me, you shaped me. It's a creation word. It's like a potter masterfully working his clay on the wheel. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I was intricately woven together within her. Can you visualize the detail and the care with which God creates? Each stitch, each molecule, each cell, each tissue, each organ, intimately, intricately woven with love and intentionality. I praise you, David says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God's creative handiwork in making human persons is awe-inspiring. It's worship-inducing. It's his creativity, it's his power and authority that we see that causes us to worship. My frame, my skeletal structure, David is saying, was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret protective vault of my mother's womb. Oh, and friends, if you've ever seen the awful aftermath, pictures of abortion, you can see the precious frame, the skeletal structure, even at seven weeks of that little precious person that was snuffed out. God has carefully constructed our frames that then lie in pieces post-abortion. What is the unborn? God's word tells us a precious unborn human person, the intricate work of his very hands. But what does science tell us about the identity of the unborn? Keith L. Moore writes in his embryology textbook entitled The Developing Human, Clinically Oriented Embryology, human development begins at fertilization when a male gamete or a sperm unites with a female gamete or oocyte to form a single cell, a zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell marked the beginning of each one of us as a unique individual. Dr. Jerome Lejeune, former professor of genetics at the University of Descartes in Paris writes, after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. It is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. It is plain experimental evidence. Each individual has a very neat beginning at conception. What does the Bible say? What does science say? Precious unborn human person. What does a toddler say? I remember my wife, Lara, she was 30 weeks, 34 weeks pregnant with our first son, Soren. My oldest, my daughter, Cecile, was two and a half at the time. She loved to see mommy's tummy growing and growing. As uncomfortable it was for mommy, Cecile loved to see and rub mama's tummy. And do you know how Cecile would respond as we pointed to mommy's tummy and said, Cecile, what's in there? What's in there? Every time she nailed it, it's a baby. It's a baby. Every time she nailed it, the unborn is a baby, a precious unborn human person, a truth affirmed by scripture, affirmed by science, affirmed by a toddler. The truth that the unborn is a human being is a game changer in this discussion on abortion. It changes the way we think and approach this issue. It changes the way we see and discern this issue. 
well, what are our common cultural claims about abortion? And how do these claims square with the reality that the unborn is a person? I just think through some of these common claims. Here's a few of them. It's a sampling. Look, Dane, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I'm not going to restrict another woman's right to have one. That's a common one. I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I'm not going to restrict another woman's right to have one. Widely held position. But what if the unborn is a, is a human being? Would it be okay for someone to say, look, I'm personally opposed to slavery, but I'm not going to restrict another person's right to have one, to own one. No, a slave is a human being, and as such, he or she has intrinsic value and worth and the right not to be treated as property. Would it be okay for someone to say, look, I'm personally opposed to spousal abuse, but I'm not going to restrict another husband's right to beat his wife. No, a spouse is a precious human person, has intrinsic dignity and value and the right not to be beat on. Friends, in the same way, an unborn child is a human being and as such has inherent dignity and value and the right not to be killed by elective abortion. Abortion, like slavery, like spousal abuse, is an assault on the sanctity of human life. You can't oppose it yourself and approve it for somebody else. That's a contradiction. It's morally, objectively wrong in any case. It's wrong for you. It's wrong for someone else. We have to ask the question, well, why are you personally opposed to abortion? If abortion doesn't unjustly kill innocent human beings, why oppose it at all? It would just be another medical procedure. Why oppose it at all? People often say abortion is a profoundly difficult issue. Well, well why is it profoundly difficult? Some will say abortion is a tragic choice. Well, why is it tragic? What's going on here? Abortion is profoundly difficult and tragic because a precious unborn human person is being snuffed out. Some will say abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Well, safe for whom? Could it ever be safe for the unborn human being? Legal, should it ever be legal to kill an innocent human being? Rare, why make abortion rare? What's at stake here? Life, life is at stake. Another common claim, we can't legislate morality, so keep your religion out of lawmaking. Well, wait a minute. Many of our laws are grounded in inherent sense of right and wrong, inherent morality, whether you're religious or not. If you take my car, you've committed a crime. If you steal, you've committed a crime. If you take the life of an innocent human being, you've committed a crime. All human persons are born with a moral compass, a sense of right and wrong, though it's been distorted by sin in the fall. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 2.15, God has written morality on the hearts, on the consciences of men and women. Though it's corrupted, we still have this inherent yet marred sense of right and wrong. Whether you're a Christian or not, religious or not, you have a general sense of right and wrong. and We see it reflected in our lawmaking all the time. The two most common reasons for abortion in this country are, number one, the inconvenient timing of a pregnancy, and number two, the expense of caring for the child. But think of, think of it this way. When human beings are inconvenient and expensive, should we get rid of them? I grew up with 
three other siblings, an older brother, two younger sisters. My dad worked two jobs. My mom worked at jobs as a school teacher for decades. I can assure you we were both expensive and inconvenient, but thank God they didn't think that way. It would be cruel to a woman to make her carry an unwanted pregnancy for nine months. But how much more the cruelty to the aborted human person? No doubt pregnancy is difficult. Unplanned pregnancy is difficult. Any pregnancy is difficult, but it's also temporary. Abortion's permanent. What about in the case of rape? Is abortion not justified? Rape is an evil. It is evil. It's a heartbreaking reality. Let's be clear on that. But what compounds that evil and heartache is a subsequent abortion. My mother taught me, my older brother, and two younger sisters, two wrongs don't make a right. You can't cancel out one act of evil by perpetrating another one on top of it. Two wrongs don't make a right. The guilt and shame of that precious woman who was raped will only be amplified when she elects to terminate that precious unborn life inside her. Let's think about this question from another angle. Uh, say a woman is raped, which is a despicable act, as I've said, act of evil and injustice, but a woman is raped, she becomes pregnant, but decides to carry and keep her baby full term. The baby's a boy, and when her boy becomes a toddler, in a moment of rage, and she's reminded of his criminal father because this little toddler looks like his criminal father, she takes his life. What would we call that? We would call that murder. But if it happens in the womb, we call it abortion and everything's okay. The only difference is degree and development. Both are precious human beings. Toddler, the unborn, the only difference is degree of development. The identity of the unborn lies at the heart of this issue. How we answer the question, what is the unborn, dramatically shapes how we think and address the practice of abortion. Still some will say, well, we can't actually be sure when life begins. We can't be sure that the unborn is human. It may or may not be human. But if there's even a sliver of a chance that it's human, even a sliver of a chance, wouldn't, be, wouldn't we be wise to err on the side of life? Even if it's a remote possibility that the unborn is human, how can we ever move forward and terminate a pregnancy in the midst of the uncertainty? Imagine a house catching fire and the neighbor, two houses down, calls 911. The firemen show up and they meet with the neighbor, Bob, who says to the fireman, look, I don't know if the owners are home. Pam and, Le oh, Pam and Larry, we have a Pam and Larry here. Oscar and Olivia. Oscar and Olivia may or may not be in there. I just don't know. I've not seen them in a couple days. What's the fireman going to do? I can tell you what he won't do is, well, we just can't be sure if Oscar and Olivia are in there, so we're just gonna let the house burn down. No, 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 no. The fireman, in the moment of uncertainty, is gonna run, break down the door, run up, and just check the house all over. Who's in there? Why? Because the potential, potential for life is in there. In the midst of the uncertainty, there's a potential for life. They're going in, they're trying to save life. We protect life, we save life all the time. Except in the womb. 
the first truth that we've examined in Psalm 139 is that a pregnant woman's womb contains a precious unborn human person. A second truth from Psalm 139. All people, all people have a knowledge that God is the creator of life and life is valuable. All people have an inherent sense that God is creator and life is valuable. Consider what David says in verse 14. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. When David considers his experience, his very own life, he naturally acknowledges, God, you did this. This is your work. You made me. This is amazing, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. I cannot deny it. You're the creator and giver of my life and all of life. He's an example of how all human beings have this inherent sense that that there is a creator. God's activity in the world, he's imprinted the, the knowledge and the awareness of his creative work on the consciences of men and women. The apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter one, verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to people because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Every person has an inherent sense that God creates. Now, as Paul goes on to say, we as human beings are bent on suppressing and denying the truth because of our sinfulness. Romans 1 verse 18, in their unrighteousness, they suppress the, two, the truth. Nevertheless, God has hardwired into every human being this sense, this intrinsic knowledge of his creative work. And his precious handiwork is most evidently supremely displayed in the creation of human beings, the crown of his creation. Friends, this intrinsic knowledge of the reality and the value of created life is the reason why countless women and men and grandparents are straining under the guilt of abortion, the shame post-abortion. They know, we know something has gone drastically wrong. There's a sense that beautiful life has been snuffed out wonderfully created, supremely valuable life has been extinguished. And that aching, haunting feeling inside just doesn't go away. We must confront one of the greatest lies in this conversation. And that lie is this, abortion will just take care of this problem and it'll all go away. Abortion's gonna take care of this problem that you're facing and it will all go away. Oh, that's a lie. That is a lie. Don't believe it. I'd like to read for you a testimony from a woman who speaks candidly about the wreckage left behind many years later in the wake of an abortion. I was 19. I had just moved to a new town to be closer to my boyfriend at the time. I know a bonehead move, but we were in love. He was in school, I was working at a mall, but moving up at my job. I had plans to finish school and we were going to move in together. We were sexually active all through our first year of college and nothing much changed about that, but we tried to be careful. I wish I could pinpoint the exact moment that we had a lapse in judgment, 
but I honestly can't. I, I can say that this was a stunning surprise to have an annual checkup and find out that I was pregnant. Now I am not a crier, but I do remember sitting on my couch and crying and tearfully calling my mother long distance, whom I thought was somehow going to reach through the phone and kill me. All she said was, we will support you in whatever you decide. But she had instilled in me not to come home pregnant unless there was a wedding ring on my hand. I knew going back home was not a real option for me. Besides, I could barely afford to pay my rent, let alone a train ticket back home. I told my boyfriend, and he was supportive, but like most men, he looked at me and asked me what I wanted to do, like I had the magic answer. He told me he loved me, and that helped a little bit, but how was I going to care for another life? Financially, my own life seemed to be on the edge of a cliff. He was an unemployed student, and I was employed but in a dead-end job if I didn't get back to school. I had very little savings, and my mom was struggling as well. So it was a joint decision to end my pregnancy on June 15, 1991. I will never forget that date. I went somewhere deep inside myself that day. I recall the tiny office and my boyfriend, who later became my fiance, husband, and ex-husband 13 years later. He was holding my hand. I recall the smells of the room vividly. When I go to a hospital to this day, it makes me feel a bit unnerved. I recall the light green paint on the walls and the tile on the ceiling of the exam room. I recall vividly the doctor telling me to lay back and her telling the nurse that I was not 10 weeks, but actually 13 weeks. And since they had already started the procedure, they might as well continue it. I wanted to scream, no, stop. But I was never so scared, scared to move forward, scared to go back. It is at the very top of my list of regrets. There isn't a June 15th that has gone by since, or will that go by, that I haven't thought of that child I aborted. I've imagined it was a girl, and I named her. She would be 32 by now. On her own, perhaps with her own family. I have another child now. The day of her birth was clouded by many things. She was full term, but she had some complications. And my first thought after seeing her beautiful little face was, oh God, I'm so scared. I'm so sorry. Please don't take it out on this one. I know it was a bit paranoid, but for a while it was touch and go. And I just didn't know. She's doing fine right now. For a long time, I thought I would just put it behind me, get over it. But on occasion, I look into the eyes of my daughter and get a glimpse of what her sister may have been. Thank you, brother. And it saddens me. My point is, it stays with you, that choice. In some cases, it haunts you. I know when that day is coming, I feel it in my bones. My mood changes, though I don't touch the dark place I went to that day, the place where you are alive and walking and talking, but really there's no one in your body, the place where your inner voice is shouting, but no one seems to be listening. If I could save another woman from making that choice, I would. Thank you for taking the time to read this. It's the first time I've said these things out loud. This was posted a few years back by a 45-year-old woman in Buffalo. She says, it stays with you. That choice, it haunts you, she desperately says. How does a woman who's had an abortion move forward? How does a boyfriend who passively sat back and watched move forward? How do grandparents who were indifferent or perhaps who encouraged or in many cases paid for the abortion, how do they move forward in the midst of the crushing guilt and shame? There is only one way, and David speaks of it in Psalm 139. 
At the end of the psalm, verses 23 and 24, we find the third truth that shapes our discussion on this issue. David prays in Psalm 23, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What life-giving truth do we find here? Truth number three. God hears our confession of sin and leads us in the way of forgiveness. God hears our confession of sin and leads us in the way of forgiveness. Feeling the weights of his own sin and plagued by the anxiousness of his own conscience. We don't know the background, but David comes before God in honest confession. And he asked God to search the depths of his heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He fully acknowledged that something isn't right within him. His thoughts are restless. His conscience is uneasy. Lord, you know my thoughts. You know my anxious cares. You know exactly what troubles me. And David asked God to find the grievous ways within him, those sinful thoughts and actions that bring David grief, that bring God grief. David trusts God, lead me in the way everlasting, the way of restoration, the way of wholeness and forgiveness. That is the way. Friend, you come here today feeling the weight of your own sin, plagued by the anxious thoughts, the heavy guilt in your own conscience. Oh, God will hear your confession. He will hear your prayer. Let him search the depths of your own soul. He knows the grievous ways in you and in me. He invites us to, to pray, to confess. For the women who have had abortions, that sin grieves you, grieves God. For the men who cowardly encouraged an abortion, that sin grieves you, it grieves God. For the grandparents who paid for an abortion, that sin grieves you, it grieves God. For the healthcare providers that conducted an abortion or abortions, it grieves you, it grieves God. And for all of us who've approached this issue with apathy, indifference, that sin grieves us, it grieves God. God will hear our confession. Will you come before him and confess? Upon hearing our confession, God is faithful to lead us in the way of everlasting, the way of forgiveness. This everlasting way that David is led toward is the way of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through him. No one can receive forgiveness and restoration except through Jesus Christ. He's the only way for sin-laden, guilt-laden sinners to be forgiven. You see, when we consider the grievous nature of our sin in the area of abortion, we don't need an excuse. We need an exchange. We don't need an excuse. We need an exchange. And that's made possible through Jesus Christ who hung naked and quivering on a cross 2,000 years ago and the most miraculous, glorious exchange ever that ever took place happened there. All of our sin on his shoulders, all of his perfection given to us. We don't need an excuse. We need an exchange and it happens through trusting in Jesus Christ. He will take every ounce of your guilt, all of your shame. He takes it all and gives you his perfection, his purity, his righteousness, clothed, robed in his righteousness. We receive this by faith. We cannot earn it. He took it all, died in our place. Your life is now hid with Christ, united to him.
So now when God looks upon you, he no longer sees a woman who had an abortion. He sees the perfection of his son, Jesus. He no, no longer sees a boyfriend who cowardly encouraged an abortion. He sees the perfection of his son, Jesus. He no longer sees a, a grandparent who paid for an abort, abortion. He sees the perfection of his son. He no longer sees a healthcare provider who conducted an abortion. He sees the perfection of his son, Jesus. He no longer sees apathetic, indifferent Christians on this issue, he sees the perfection of his son and it empowers us forward on a new and better path. This gift is yours today. It is mine today by faith. This gift of Jesus Christ. Praise God for his indescribable gift in Christ. One final area to cover. Where do we go from here? How do we better think about and engage four closing encouragements? Four closing encouragements. Number one, pray. Prayer is powerful. It's the posture of dependence that connects us with the Lord of heaven and earth, the almighty one. Throughout the ages, God has heard the desperate pleas of his people in the midst of injustice and wrongdoing. He's acted decisively in history. He does it again and again. He acted decisively against injustice in responding to the prayers of people who were enslaved for decades. The pleas of broken, oppressed people and their advocates rose to the Lord Slavery ended in this country and in Great Britain. What might it look like for you and your friends just to organize a prayer walk, to go downtown to Boston, to the Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices and just pray for their protection, just, just prayer walk, intercede for them. Walk by planned parenthood and pray that God would end their mission. Don't be hateful. Two wrongs don't make a right. Don't be ugly. Too many times Christians in the name of Christ have gone and done and said hateful things on posters and in crowds. Don't do that. Don't do that. Be gracious. But pray against their work. Pray. It's powerful. Powerful. Prepare. Prepare yourself to engage in this discussion. Educate yourself. Read. There's some very helpful resources. Uh, the Case for Life by Scott, Scott Klusendorf. Very helpful. The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf. Another book, Answering the Call by John Enzor. John Enzor. A helpful website that I point you to is abort73.com. Abort73.com just provides a comprehensive overview of the issue. Just, just educate yourself, prepare. Some of you are uniquely prepared through your background, your training, your education, your current work, maybe in law or bioethics public policy. You're uniquely equipped for this engagement. William Wilberforce poured his life and career to end slavery in Britain. How might you fully engage your gifts, your training, your background? Pray, prepare, provide. Look, the reality is it costs money to come alongside men and women who are on the precipice of a very bad decision. It costs money to promote life. It makes money to have abortions. It's a multi, multi-million dollar industry in this country. Multi, multi-million dollar. It costs money to save life. It makes money to take life. 
As you, as you walk out, there, there are baby bottles from the Boston Center for Pregnancy Choice. You fill it up with change. People don't like change now. My wife's like, ah, let's write a check or let's do it online. You can make a donation online. There's bottles there if you want to take one of those, but it costs money to save life. Pray, prepare, provide. Lastly, proclaim. Proclaim. Proclaim the gospel of God's grace in your home to your neighbors. One out of four. One out of four women have had this. That's one out of four men have been implicated as well. Proclaim the gospel. Hold out Jesus to every person that you interact with. Let him be the seasoning of your conversation. Hold out Jesus. He's our only hope. He's the only source of forgiveness for sin-laden, guilt-laden men and women. And parents, can I, just, can I speak to you just directly right now? Will your home be a place where the gospel is present and if your kids make a mistake, they don't have to be afraid to come home to you? So many teens... Male and female teens are afraid of the gavel of judgment dropping on them from their Christian parents. And so they drive a two, two states over to have an abortion. Is your home a hotbed of the gospel? A place where they can come and say, Mom, I, I've made a bad mistake. You're going to hear them. You're going to point them to Christ. You're going to help them. Let your home be a place of the gospel of grace. Accountability, yes. Forgiveness, yes. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that shapes our thinking on this issue. It gives us hope and moves us forward in health. I know this is a tough issue. We want to help you. You can make a note on your connection card if you want to pray together. You can mark confidential. Only I will see that. But you need to know your church loves you no matter what you've done it's a place for you saturated in the gospel imperfect as we are but we're going to help you so i'm going to pray i'm going to pause just for a few moments we can just pray and then i'll lead us and then daniel's going to come and lead us in singing let's pray Gracious God, we come to you. We thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But all are justified freely by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And then we look to you, find our hope in you. Some of us struggling under the weight of the guilt of our sin, be it abortion related or not. Help us to go to you for forgiveness, to rest in you. We take our, our, our load of, of guilt and shame away. Help us, Lord, to love people, to engage in the appropriate way on this issue, kindly, winsomely, courageously. Build up our church, Lord, to love our neighbors well, to love our people well, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.